You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In our current age of social media filter bubbles, a 24-hour news channel to suit any worldview, and the ability to go through an entire day without speaking to another human being if we want to, it's incredibly easy to misunderstand other people, to settle for the easy, less human explanation of who those different from you are and what motivates them to be that way. As Christians, though, we're called to something greater— to know and love our neighbors, even and especially those different from us. Even further, we're called to forgive those who misunderstand us. Our guest tonight understands this call, as well as understands that sometimes the most harmful misunderstanding are the ones we have of ourselves. Uh, We're happy to welcome Mary DeMuth to Christian Humanist Profiles to discuss her book, The Most Misunderstood Women of the Bible, what their stories tell us about thriving. Thanks so much for being on Christian Humanist Profiles, Mary. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, I really enjoyed reading this book a lot, uh, and I was incredibly moved by a story that you opened the book with, that you tell in the introduction about a conversation you had with a pastor where how you felt about feeling misunderstood or the act of being misunderstood kind of evolved. Uh, Can you walk us through that change? Yeah, and you know, it's just uh, one of the things I think all about 100% feeling misunderstood, and so I was processing that. And in the midst of the conversation, um, the question came back to me, uh, do you realize that Jesus was the most misunderstood person on earth? And that really changed everything for me. Um, because it caused me to go back in my mind through the gospels and to look at the life of Jesus and to see, you know, how is that true? And then what happened when he was misunderstood and how does that inform me? And, um, this, this idea of Jesus's empathy toward his followers and being able to understand even being misunderstood. And so that just kind of helped me to reframe my particular predicament at the time and to realize I have a savior who empathizes with, with how this feels and just really changed the way I look at things. Thanks for sharing that. I think that is super important to, to remember uh, that the incarnation of Christ and the humanity of Christ also means uh, empathy for us as as people who are human and and complicated. That's a that's a really great point. So, the interesting thing about this book, uh, for listeners of the Christian Humanist profiles and listeners of the Christian Feminist podcast, uh, that's also getting this interview, is. Uh, you're not just talking about misunderstood people in the Bible. Uh, this is a book about misunderstood women. Why focus there? Is there something that uh, might make women easier to misunderstand or to be misunderstood? Not necessarily. I think we're all misunderstood. Um, but in terms of looking at all of these stories that I unpack from the Old and the New Testament, you see a lot of not only misunderstanding these women in their context, 
but we see, we also see a lot of, in our churches, we see a lot of misunderstanding about them just over the years and over church history. And so it, it, there was kind of two things going on in the book where I, I wanted to look at how were they misunderstood in their context, but how have we misunderstood them as well? And what I took away from that is that so many times we've heard sermons or um, we've read books and these women have just been kind of glossed over. And I just wanted to see what would it be like to have a really plain reading of the scripture about these women and ask some really great questions and try to understand them in their context and also really understand, too, that they're really living, breathing human beings who existed, and therefore they have something that they can teach me. Now, the reason it's not the misunderstood people of of the Bible is that when I originally came up with the idea, um, I had titled the book Miss, M-I-S-S, and Understood. So I was looking at particularly women. Ah, okay. (laughs) Uh, So I like what you said about sort of historical misunderstanding. And I do want to get into theological tradition and interpretation in just a minute, because I think that's a a huge part of uh, what the book is doing. But before we get there, uh, the thing that made this book, unlike any other piece of um, feminist theology or texts related to feminist theology that I've ever read, is that you do some really interesting things with genre in it. You uh, tell us in the introduction that you put on your fiction hat, uh, quote unquote, in every chapter, and every chapter involves uh, a first-person narrative of the woman who the chapter is about. Uh, I found that really refreshing, and it made me think about the theological interpretations differently as I was reading. Can you... uh, Tell us why you chose to portray the women through this kind of fictionalizing. Well, I started off my writing career as a novelist. And so whenever I get to put that hat on, I get very excited. Um, But what I love about writing novels and writing fiction is that there is this beautiful thing that happens that you climb into the skin of your protagonist and you begin to ask questions from their perspective And so um, not only are these uh, portrayals very close to scripture, so if there's dialogue, it's exactly taken from um, the translation that I used in this book. Um, It's taken word for word and based on scholarship and all of that. So that's part of it. Um, But I really wanted to just climb in there and see how would I feel, ask that question, how would I feel if I was Hagar? How would I feel if if I was running away from my um, enslavement? How would I feel if I was Bathsheba? How would I feel? And so these, that's what really informed making these, fleshing these women out as 365 degrees, you know, in a full dimensional human beings. And I'm sure, like, I'm sure I, I don't get it 100% accurate, but I did the best that, that I could in, um, through scholarship and study and, um, and then also as using fiction techniques. Thanks for explaining that. I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of uh, empathy, particularly when we're thinking about women who are coming from a culture or cultures very different uh, mm-hmm. from 
us uh, reading in, in the 21st century. Um, so another thing that I think is, is generically different about this book is in addition to the novelization, you also uh, gesture back to the reader. Each chapter comes not only with discussion questions, uh, but with what you call truths about fully understood you. Uh, so mm -hmm. you're asking the reader not only to empathize and put herself uh, in the shoes of these biblical women, but you're also asking her to use that reflection to then reflect back on herself. Um, why did you choose to structure the book like that? And what did you want the reader to get out of that choice? So probably the... The, the best reason, I think, is that I think we grow best in community. And so by adding those kinds of questions and reflections, my hope was that there would be processing of this book in community. I just don't grow well in a vacuum. I grow when I'm with other people. And so that's kind of the motivation behind that. But I also wanted to, I, I wanted to have a so what to every story um, to be able to say, okay, this is what this person walked through this is now what I can take away from that. When I'm walking through the valley of misunderstanding, here's some things I can think about. I can think about, you know, Tamar and what she went through and, and how she endured. And um, here's some takeaway. So it's just my way of kind of, I've already done it in the nonfiction narrative, but just kind of nuggetizing <laughs> the truths from that chapter in little pithy statements <laughs> to help people. Nuggetizing, I like that a lot. <laughs> Uh, what struck me about this kind of genre melding that you're doing is uh, that I, I feel like this book exists in a really interesting liminal space between what we think of as traditional um, Bible-backed theology, which it, it certainly contains. You can tell that you've done your homework there uh, in terms of footnotes and uh comments about biblical translation, uh, that stuff is there. Uh, but it also feels to me very much like a lot of more traditionally feminine gendered texts, um, things in the self-help genre, things like gratitude journals uh, mm. or um, meditation guides that ask you to put yourself in the shoes of another person or, uh, or time or place. Uh, can you talk a little bit about other texts or kinds of texts uh, that inspired this book? Am I way off here in seeing what I'm seeing? Um, you know, I think really a lot of it came from, I've been doing a lot of rapid reading of the Bible lately. So I will read the whole Bible in 60 or 90 days. And I've been doing it for the past couple of years. And so a lot of it just came from this like large diet of scripture. And when you do that, when you read the Bible rapidly like that, your mind begins to form all of these connections. And it's been such an amazing thing for me um, just to begin to make those questions, you know, ask those questions and make those connections because I've had more of this whole counsel of scripture, the story of scripture, the, the beauty of redemption, the, the narrative of old, uh, new Testament connections. It's just been really fun. So I would say that most of that's just come from quiet reading of the Bible over and over and over again over the past couple of years. Uh, 
wow, that's really ambitious, uh, reading <laughs> the whole Bible that quickly. I Hats off to you for that, definitely. It's, it's a delight. It's really fun. Is there a particular connection uh, you had through that reading process that uh, surprised you or that uh, germinated into something that we find in the book? Yeah, I think looking at how Jesus treats women and just watching it without a lot of like trying to come to the text really purely which, you know, is, it's hard. It's kind of like when you, it's kind of like, I wish I could watch the first episode of Star Wars for the first time when I, you know, like when I went to the movie theater and it was just brand new and it, you can't, I mean, I can't read the Bible brand new anymore, but I'm hoping to learn how to have that inquisitive curiosity and looking at Jesus and how he, you know, I didn't cover this person in, um, in this book, but the Samaritan woman who, uh, the woman at the well who Jesus has the longest theological discourse with anyone ever in the gospels is with her. And looking at that really, it really informed, you know, how valuable women are. And even in the context of that particular culture, he really went out of his way to make sure that women were heard and dignified. And I just love that. That feels like a good segue into some questions about the women that you do cover in the book. Uh, so when I was scanning the table of contents, uh, when I, I got the book from your publisher, uh, I was sort of playing a game with myself. Okay, who who do I think are going to be the misunderstood women that, that show up here? And the majority of them uh, I expected I found... Um, partly because they seem to be contentious figures in a kind of biblical or theological culture wars, um, people who versus uh, people who have a more conservative uh, view of the Bible or a more um, progressive view of the Bible. I knew Eve was going to be there, for example. Um, I, fig mm. I figured Bathsheba would. Um, I was happy to see the Proverbs 31 woman there because I feel like uh, we don't get her from enough different angles, but uh, more about her and how she connects to my personal neuroses in a minute. Uh, <laughs> but there are also a few women that I found that I did not at all expect to find, uh, like Phoebe and Naomi. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why the women you pick are there? How are they misunderstood in different ways? Uh, why did you pick them as misunderstood figures particularly? Great question. Um, as you mentioned, I mean, obviously we're starting with the first lady, <laughs> Eve, and uh, she has been misunderstood both in her context and um, theologically and also in millennia. Um, so she have obviously seemed like an obvious choice for me. I also have been very fascinated with Hagar, most of my Christian walk, um, and what she had to go through and what she learned about God and how she interacted with God on such a personal level. So I've always just loved her. And I've, I've been kind of, I've been frustrated about poor Leah, who, um, we kind of, we kind of push her in the back of the narrative. She's not popular like Rachel is. And I wanted to tell her story and find the redemption in the middle of that story. I also have been frustrated that um, Rahab, 
is always called Rahab the harlot, even though she did some pretty amazing things and, or the, you know, the Rahab, the prostitute. And so I wanted to pull her out. Naomi, I pulled, I decided to look at her because, you know, we're going through so much grief in our world and we don't know how to grieve very well. And here she is, she is so, so grieved. And we, here we see a process of lament moving from desperation to, um, you know, something that's outside of desperation into a more fuller picture of things. Yes, on Bathsheba, I picked her because I'm tired of people saying she was a seductress and I'm <laughs> over it. Amen, um, amen. <laughs> I'm sick of it. And Tamar, I wanted to tell her story. I'm a sexual abuse survivor as well. And um, her story didn't end beautifully. And I feel like that's real life. So I wanted to talk about her. P31, um, I think like you, I have some of those neuroses too, and I've been intimidated by her, so I thought I'm just going to tackle her. Mary of Magdala has been often very misunderstood, um, even historically, and she was actually pretty amazing and industrious and powerful, and so of course I wanted to talk about her. And then Phoebe, I actually had, um, I had been commissioned to write a novel about Phoebe, uh, and which I've already written and it's out. Um, but because I, I wrote about her, I did a lot of, uh, research about who she could have been. And so I had all that research and I've been fascinated by her. So I decided to choose her. Thank you for that, uh, quick tour through <laughs> the women of the book. Um, I want to go deeper to a couple of them. Uh, First, Leah was a a big, like, I I feel like I discovered so many things biblically that I didn't remember from kind of just glossing over that story. Um, And it was, I was very moved by the way that you humanize Leah, because I think all of us, especially women in our society that is so... Uh, visually focused and outwardly focused and places way too much um, value on outward beauty for women of all ages. Uh, I feel like it was so easy to empathize and sympathize with uh, Leah feeling like she would never measure up, she would never get the kind of attention that Rachel got, and uh, and that really changed uh, the way I thought about the story in the Bible. Particularly, it made me, and this is not the only chapter that made me do this, but um, it was one of the most important ones for me, made me get my Bible out while I was reading the book and say, wait, am I remembering this right? Like, does this phrase happen in the passage in the Bible? Uh, what does that mean if it does? Uh, is is this really the way it's described? So thank you for that. Uh, that was, was I think, a, a really... Um, a really good thing to make me figure out, like, how was I taught this? Am I remembering it correctly? Uh, particularly the thing that I had to go back and check uh, regarding that story was how does this pattern, this um, sort of changing of the birth order and, and who is entitled to what and why, how does this connect to the Jacob and Esau story? And I, like, I know how those people are related, but it had never, the penny had never really dropped in my brain in terms of, like, 
um, the usurping of position is a very similar thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was surprising to me as well to think about it that way that um, these were this was not the way it was culturally supposed to be and um, and we see too just how kind-hearted God was to both um, Leah and Esau like they we we see that um, coming about we also see a hint of that in the Hagar story where her son Ishmael is still given 12 tribes. And so there's this, there's this lovely reversal that happens where we think this is supposed to be the number one person. That's supposed to be the number two person. And this person's supposed to be blessed and that person's not supposed to be blessed, but yet God still, um, he does reversals and he still loves folks. And, um, in a world where birth order was a lot more important, like nowadays we kind of joke about birth order. Like I have three children And of course, you know, all the kids say that the youngest one is loved the most and (laughs) the oldest one is bossy. And so we have these kind of cultural ideas about, you know, birth order. But back then it was a much different deal. Yeah, I I think that's that's true. Um, So I just keep thinking about the fact that I don't think I would have clocked that birth order connection between the two stories if I hadn't been feeling Leah's feelings and Mm. seeing the story through her eyes. So help me out here. What do you think that means in terms of the ways we're typically taught to read and interpret the Bible, which I'm not sure what your uh, Sunday school or upbringing was like, (laughs) but mine um, was very detached. You know, I mean, sometimes you would put on a costume and do a dramatic reading in (laughs) vacation Bible school, but Um, outside of those times, it was very like these people lived a long time ago. And isn't it hard to imagine what they would have gone through? A a really kind of emotional uh, and historical distance that I think was probably supposed to be about being objective, but just kind of ended up, in some cases, seeming irrelevant. Right. And I think there is... um... I think there are methods that, especially when you think about like, um, I haven't really thought about this for, so it's not going to be well formed in my mind, but like when you do like a, a precepts Bible study where you're, you know, looking at observation, um, interpretation, application, those kinds of questions, you can tend to look at the Bible as, um, sentences that need to be dissected on the page and look at like the grammar of it and the, you know, the Hebrew or the Greek or the Aramaic behind it. Um, and that I think pulls you out of story. And that's, I think why rapid reading the Bible was super helpful for me because it helped me to see grand narratives and help me to just begin to ask those, those funny little questions. What would they have been feeling Um, how would I feel if I was in that situation? And this feels unfair to me. Why is it, why do I feel like it's unfair? And what would I have felt in that situation? And what would I have done? And how can I learn from Leah and how she did things? And I don't know, Um, again, not very well formed in my mind because I haven't thought about it too deeply, but I think there's a difference between dissecting it and just asking story questions. And maybe that's what I bring to the table as a novelist. 
No, I, I think that's great because I think it, it does two things at once. It um, sort of uses these women in uh, in a didactic, not in a negative sense, in a, in a positive teaching sense, um, holds them up as people who have something to show us, which I think we should be doing in terms of um, the Bible as a holy, sacred text. Um, but also I think as women, and sometimes especially as Christian women, we're put in a lot of situations that tell us to invalidate our feelings and emotions. Mm. And I think thinking about these biblical texts in that way, what does reading this make me feel? Why does it make me feel that way? Um, I think that can be really valuable in terms of feelings and emotions being um, ways that can, can show us how God works in us. They're, they're not always these, you know, flighty, deceptive things. Hmm. Yeah, we have definitely denigrated emotions and, um, they're such a huge part of our lives. And I'm so grateful when I look at Jesus in the new Testament, he's got the full range there and he's the most alive human being ever to be. So if Jesus had those emotions, then it's certainly great and okay and normal and normative to have them. And we don't necessarily need to assign um, negative words to negative emotions and positive words to positive emotions. I do think, you know, what you're getting at maybe is that there's some church cultures out there where there's only acceptable emotions accepted and um, there's not a lot of room for struggle or asking questions or being upset or um, any of those things. And so maybe that's part of what I, why I did what I did was just to kind of give people permission to ask those questions and to be okay with the fact that we're 100% human. And this is part of how we um, experience our lives. And so of course the Bible characters that we talk about and when we read about, they had bad days and they were frustrated and sad and scared and excited and joyful and all the things. So I don't know if it answers your question, but um, that's kind of how I approached it. No, that's great. I, I think a lot of people um, sort of journey through personal theologies uh, because they don't know what to do with all those so-called negative feelings. Uh, I know I um, and CFP listeners will, will know this. Uh, I was raised Southern Baptist and uh, and I'm, I'm now Catholic. I converted as an adult, um, partly because I felt like there wasn't a lot of room in the tradition I was raised for um, fullness in a physical sense. I, I felt this kind of Gnosticism that mm -hmm. separated, um, that elevated the spiritual over the physical yeah. so much that they weren't as connected. And I, I feel a lot of um, emotional wholeness because of sacramental theology and, and the way that I feel like the Catholic tradition not only lets but expects uh, me to bring my whole self, uh, physical and spiritual, to, to worship. So I think what you're talking about is very similar, this idea that like a wholeness of emotion is, um, is, is present in the way we think about 
um, God and the people of God. I think that's a really liberating thing. I agree. And I think there is so much to be said about Gnosticism. And I think that, you know, I don't even, I think where we live right now, it's very hard to untether that from modern Christianity. And I feel like I'm, the older I get, I'm better able to do that, but it's still, it's difficult to do that. I was just reading the um, Passover account, one of them in Luke and just how physical that was. They're sitting most likely on the ground. They're, you know, hanging out, they're probably stinky (laughs) and they're passing around physical objects and, and, uh, you know, someone's going to betray Jesus. It's all just very raw and real. And that's an embodied moment and one that we're to remember for the rest of our lives. So you actually talk really beautifully about a lot of embodied moments, uh, in this book. Uh, one of them that really, struck me was uh, you talk about Eve's experience of childbearing and childbirth in such gorgeous language, um, language that I've never really heard associated with that before. And uh, I I definitely want to talk a lot about Eve and and how you explore Eve in this book. Uh, So let's, let's unpack that. Uh, can we start by talking about Eve's physicality and, and the way you incorporate embodiment uh, for both her and Adam? Um, yeah, you know, we've, we've always called her Eve, but um, she didn't have a name until after the fall. And that's something I had not realized until I did a lot of study. And I think there's just something really beautifully redemptive about that. So at first, Eve is taxonomized. Um, Adam is saying, hey, there's a draft, there's the woman, and um, she's the woman. And then after the fall, um, he calls her Eve or Hava, and uh, which is breath and life. And, and then soon she, um, you know, I've just never thought about this before. But as when I was writing, I started thinking about what would it be like to give birth to a baby with, when you've had no mother, um, you don't have a mom to ask you about breastfeeding. You don't have, all you have is watching animals give birth and, um, all you have is watching them thrive. But human babies are a lot different than animal babies and human babies take a lot more time to train and, um, nurture. They don't like, you know, within a few weeks, they're not like running around and, you know, fending for themselves or anything like that. So it was just a really interesting story question for me to think about, first of all, just the fact that she has this beautiful name and it was given after the fall. And there was obviously sex before the fall, sex after the fall, and and there was no um, penalty for that sex. It it produced a baby. And um, I don't know, there's a lot of things that I thought about when I was reading through that again, writing it. I really appreciated the fact that you have Eve reflect positively on her growing belly and and the way her body changes because I think we're taught about the curse of childbirth um, mm. as as being central to the Eve story um, that you know it's it's kind of the 
female gendered version of, of Adam working the ground and those are negative things. Um, and, and it's negative here too. It's, it's certainly connected to the fall as it should be. But I, I thought it was really gorgeous how you also um, include this self-knowledge no pun at all intended, <laughs> actual self-knowledge um, of, of the way her body changes in, in pregnancy here. That that's, adds a, a richness to, um, to the way it reads for me that I don't think I've ever had before. I've, I've had the privilege of, of, of birthing three children, and I still think one of the most beautiful parts of pregnancy is feeling your baby kick inside. And um, so there, the, I just couldn't imagine like how profound that is. Like that is such a profound thing. Like there's another human being inside of me kicking me. Um, some of mine kicked me a lot, but, uh, so that it just, I just kind of brought myself into that story and in just remembering my own pregnancies. And I definitely also had a lot of pain in childbirth and, and I was sick for nine months. And so there's a lot of that, you know, curse in there too, but, um, but it's a beautiful thing, childbirth. And so I'm really glad that you caught that and were able to see that there was something really beautiful about that. I, I, while you were talking, I found the passage I was looking for. So I, I want to read a bit just so that listeners understand, um, the description that I'm talking about. Uh, in the days after banishment, Eve found solace in the arms of Adam. Though his hands roughened from toiling in the soil, she welcomed his embrace. The bile she'd experienced from the tree's fruit returned, but this time she could expel her stomached food. For months this happened as her belly grew outward, a wondrous thing. She remembered the female animals with their swollen bellies prior to birthing, and she thanked God for the gift of life. Though she had made a fatal choice, God granted her the kick of a child within her womb. On the day of completion, she screamed her pain, but as Cain rushed into the world into the hands of a bewildered Adam as midwife, Eve could not help but exclaim, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. That is so powerful to me that the fact that this paragraph acknowledges her sin and makes it bad and affect everything afterward, but still allows her to see the love and the good and the miracle uh, of creation and allows her to acknowledge uh, God's part in that creation despite her sin. It's just so beautiful and I think will be helpful uh, to a lot of people. Well, thank you. And I, I love, I love thinking um, about redemption and, you know, we always, when we talk about the, the fall of humankind we almost always focus on what happened negatively, which makes sense because it was the story, you know, the story starter of the Bible. But um, but there's so much redemption in that story. There's so much, you know, the covering of skins over their naked bodies, the, the fact that they weren't like completely annihilated in that moment, that they were able to produce offspring. And it's just, it's beautiful to me. Uh, so one more question about Eve, and then we can move on to some other folks. Um, when I was growing up, I was often taught that it's Eve who is responsible for the fall, um, 
not entirely, but at least primarily, uh, because she sinned first before Adam did. You make an interesting point in the Eve chapter that she is honest, she admits her sin to God, and Adam uh, deflects and shifts blame. Uh, that was a new one for me. Can you talk about what uh, you learned about Eve kind of formatively growing up, and how did you get from wherever that place was to the reading that this chapter offers? Sure. I um, I met Christ when I was 15, so I didn't grow up in church. Um, but from that point on, I was in church, and I was taught kind of the same things that you were, that, you know, it's all Eve's fault, and she shouldn't have done that. And that's where I'm, I kind of get to that place of we need to really go back to just simple, careful reading of Scripture. Because if you simply carefully read it, you'll see that Adam is standing right there. He is mute. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't say well, that's a really bad idea. Or why is he asking that? Or he's been saying nothing. He's that just standing there. That completely bowled me over, by the way. That's the first thing that I had to get my Bible out and go back and check. And to uh, to be fair, I think that this might also be um, my school education's fault. Uh, I'm, I'm an early modernist by education. I have a, a PhD in the British Renaissance. So uh, I... I was fed a healthy diet of Milton in graduate school. Okay, um, and so I, I think I was uh, remembering a little bit of Paradise Lost there, but I, mm -hmm. I had to get my Bible out and say like, wait, Adam is there the whole time? I never remembered that. That was, uh, that was interesting. Yeah. And the fascinating thing is even if we read scripture through scripture, um, all the blame is, Almost always when uh, when that sin is mentioned, it's it's talking about Adam. And we have all that verbiage in the New Testament about the first Adam and Jesus as the second Adam. And so we have through one man, uh, sin entered the world. It didn't say through one woman, it said through one man. And um, so they were both equally responsible for their sin. I'm not, I'm not letting her off the hook. But when they were confronted in the garden, Eve actually had a true confession. And she told the truth. She said, the serpent deceived me, which was true. He deceived her and I ate. And so she actually said, you're right. That thing deceived me. And I took a bite. So she actually owned what happened and had a proper, so in, you know, quote unquote, Christian response to sin and Adam instead said, blamed God and blamed her. So, um, you know, he said, it was this woman you gave me. It's your fault, God. Why'd you give me this woman? She made me do this. And she never made him. Um, she did not force him. He chose to do it as well. But he never said, I'm so sorry, or I, I did the wrong thing. He just did a blame, blame shift. And I think that's probably one of the most difficult things that we can undergo as humans in misunderstanding is when someone blames something that they've done on us. I mean, it's kind of like gaslighting, right? Um, when someone points the finger at us and shifts the blame to us and does not own their own part of the story. That's interesting. Uh, so you say you mentioned Adam's deflection um, and that, that his sin is, is blame shifting. 
you say further on in that same chapter that Eve's sin is misunderstanding God's good intentions for people. Is that sin related to blame shifting? Is there a connection there? That's a great question, and I'm not really sure. Um, But I would say that they both, in their own ways, allowed um, the serpent's words to uh, become bigger than God's words to them. And also it's interesting to think that um, Adam would have had to tell Eve about the trees. Um, He would have had to share that with her. So she was also going on secondhand knowledge Probably. I mean, there, you could make some arguments either way, but, um, so I don't know. I, I, I feel like he, he, Adam knew he wasn't supposed to do it. Um, Eve knew because Adam told her she wasn't supposed to do it. Uh, so they both knew that, but I do feel like she in particular misunderstood, you know, when the, when the servant said, did God really say this? And then he says, you're going to know good and evil. And I'm, I'm thinking in her mind, she may have thought it would be kind of nice to know what good and evil is. It would be nice to know more. It would be nice. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe there's something more, some secret knowledge that I don't have. And so this is going to help me. So probably didn't answer your question, but, um, that's kind of my thought behind it. Uh, Thank you. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I'll, I'll leave Eve for now. <laughs> Bye, Eve. <laughs> uh, so I, I mentioned um, that I, I wanted to talk about your chapter about the Proverbs 31 woman. Um, it, it was the chapter I, I think I felt the most deeply. And the thing that I, I think I, I will take away from this book the most and the thing that will make me recommend it to other people is that the way you structure the book, um, combining the, the fiction and the tools for reflection really helped me think through and process, um, some of the ways that I am, the specific ways that I am prone to sin, uh, my own patterns, my own tendencies, because I'm seeing them through the eyes of another person. Uh, I am a recovering perfectionist. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm in therapy, um, for anxiety that that stems really strongly for uh, from perfectionism, uh, my therapist is is working uh, with me about setting realistic standards for myself and um, self compassion is a a word that we talk about every uh, every session and I think that part of this internalized idea of um, I must do and be all things. Uh, for all people to the highest possible standard. I think one of the places, certainly not the only place, but definitely one of the places that I get that from as a woman who, um, you know, was at church pretty much every time the doors were open. Um, we are kind of fed the Proverbs 31 woman as this standard for living and she becomes less a person and more of a checklist of all of the ways you're supposed to be the perfect woman. And I think that that flattens her out in ways that really does uh, a disservice. Um, the, the chapter helped me because it helped me tease apart. Um, you know, this is uh, a person 
um, that was uh, written about by an actual uh, historical person, and let's not turn her into a checklist in ways that make us be unkind to ourselves. Wow, you're speaking my language, and that's um, one of my, my word for this year is kinder, and what I really feel like is that God is asking me to be kinder to myself. I'm harder on myself than, you know, than anyone in my life is. And yeah, right. It's, it's so much, I, I'm the same way too. Like I will cut other people slack all day, but it's so much harder to do it for ourselves. Ugh. It is. And I think it's because we know ourselves really well and we, um, we're just really self-critical. But what I loved about Proverbs 31 is that this, the audience for that chapter is men and no one ever talks about that. This is a mom saying to her son, here's some qualities of a good wife. And, you know, she's talking about the qualities of someone over a lifetime, not like here's a day in the life of someone who wakes up at five in the morning and bakes her bread and spins her thread and does all these things. Um, it's more like this is, this is the type of woman, you know, an industrious, uh, joyful person, but this is a, this is a, this is all the things that she's done over a period of her life. Um, we don't need to compare ourselves to one person's highlight reel and uh, look at our particular day and say, oh, well, I failed because I didn't spin thread today. Um, plus, she had servants, and I do not have any last I checked. So um, she, P31 definitely had more help than I do. And um, yeah, but the point is that I think when we have that generous lens for other people and God gives us a word like kinder for the year, um, it is a journey to learn to have that kind of self-compassion to, to realize that the Proverbs 31 woman isn't perfect either. No one on this earth is perfect. And, um, if we could just afford that kindness that we give our best friend and give it to ourselves, we would be a lot less tangled up in knots. I, I think that's a that's a really good word. Um, thank you for sharing. I I hope I will, uh, I hope I will give myself grace as I I try to to internalize those uh, those mm-hmm. messages. It's so hard. Uh, so I mentioned that um, I learned a lot about myself through reading this chapter about the Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, is there a woman or a chapter in the book that you relate to more than the others? And if so, uh, what did she teach you about yourself? Yeah, I would have to say either Bathsheba or Tamar as a sexual abuse survivor. Um, I just, I relate to both of those stories really, really sadly and well. Um, and what I, what I appreciate is this tenacity that they seem to experience and, um, and the grief. One of the things I found fascinating about Bathsheba when I was just, again, just plain old boring reading of scripture, there's no mention. And again, this, I'm taking conjecture here, but there's no mention that she and Uriah had children. And there's no mention of, well, she brought her children from Uriah with her to the palace and, you know, became David's wife. And 
none of that's ever mentioned. So I took the liberty to say perhaps she had been barren. And then if you think about it that way, um, it becomes even more poignant and more painful to think about the fact that if she was not able to have children with Uriah, whom she seemed to be very dedicated to and love, and he seemed to just be very dedicated to her and love her, um, what would it be like to then be raped and then have a child and then have that child die? I mean, there's just so many, so many layers here to this story. Um, I think a lot of us can relate, whether we've been sexually abused or not, we can relate to this idea of deep, deep grief and things not turning out the way that you hoped they would. And, you know, these kinds of stories in the Bible, like Tamar and Bathsheba, are, um, they mitigate against the prosperity gospel, which basically says if you do a bunch of stuff and pull a bunch of letter- levers, then God's obligated to give you health and wealth and all this kind of stuff. Well, that's just not real life. And um, the grace and the perseverance and the grit of these women just encourages me to keep going, keep fighting, keep healing, keep wanting to be whole for my family. Um, they, ins- they inspired me. And they were in impossible situations, and they still kept walking. I, that's a, a really profound lesson, and, and one, as uh, as you mentioned, I think we can all... Um, relate to, I think, the, um, no matter what the situation, um, the socio-political turmoil, um, two plus years of a pandemic, uh, loss, both physical and mental, that's connected to everything we've been through as a society the past couple of years, I think we can all, uh, see ourselves in, in that kind of grief, uh, so that's a, a good lesson for all of us. Thanks. So I think we've covered most of what uh, I wanted to get to. This has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, Here at Christian Humanist Profiles, in the spirit of hospitality, we always like to let our guests have the last word. Uh, So tell us one thing about the book that you want everyone to know that we haven't covered yet, or uh, if we've covered everything you wanted to get to, uh, you can take a chance to say a little bit about your next project if you have that nailed down. Yeah, we had a good broad discussion, so I don't feel cheated out of any questions or anything like that. But I have, I have another book releasing um, this summer, and it's called Love, Pray, Listen, and it's for parents of kids who um, are wayward. And... Uh, what I've learned, and this is kind of getting back to that idea of formulaic Christianity, a lot of parents were, were told, um, if you do this and you do that and you do this, then your kids are going to turn into little clones of you. <laughs> what I have found is I actually birthed three human beings, <laughs> and now that I have adult kids, it's been a really fun and interesting adventure to learn how to love them, to pray for them, and to listen to them, because those are really the only things that we can do as parents of adult kids. And so that's coming up in the fall or summer or something, I think summer, fall. And uh, that's what I wrote. Love, pray, listen. Okay, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for that. Uh, well, thank you so much, Mary, for talking to me tonight. Uh, I really learned a lot and really enjoyed your book. Uh, so thanks for the conversation. 
It's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for your generosity and for reading the book and interacting with it. It really um, blesses me as an author to have someone interact with something I've written. So thank you. You're welcome. Christian Humanist Profile.